Good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Matt, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's a joy to be with you as we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians 15. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me now. Jump down to verse 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 961. Last week, as we began our journey through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul made his case for the resurrection of Jesus using a number of arguments, arguments from history, from the scriptures, from eyewitness testimony, from the changed lives of those who encountered the risen Jesus. And now, and over the next several weeks, Paul is going to tease out what that means for our lives, why the, ra- the re- re- why the resurrection matters, not just on Sunday, but on every day. But before he does that, he does something that I think that we would do well to notice and imitate, and that is that he takes time to actually listen to his critics. He hears their objections, and he honors their questions by giving a thoughtful answer to them. And so we're going to hear what that objection is. We're going to read this text, verses 12 through 20. Then I'll pray, and then we'll unpack it together. So let's turn our attention now to God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, as marvelous and as mysterious as it is, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher that we may see Christ more clearly. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So when was the last time that you engaged in counterfactual history? All right, what, what is that? What is counterfactual history? Well, it's a, a little niche in the study of history where people ask the what-if questions, where they chart a trajectory about what might have been if an, an event or a situation panned out differently than it did. Uh, YouTube and the History Channel are full of counterfactual histories dealing with questions like, what if the British won the Revolutionary War? Or uh, what if Alexander the Great uh, didn't die when he was so young? Right? They're interesting questions. They're definitely worth falling into the YouTube wormhole for, but they're not really helpful for our daily lives. And so we ask what if questions. We do counterfactual histories of our own. Maybe you've done that with your relationships. What if I married my high school sweetheart? And then you scroll through Facebook and find whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, maybe you're asking what if questions about your life. What, what if I chose a different major in college? Uh, my grandpa uh, always asked what if he invested in IBM when he had the opportunity to do so. 
maybe you ask what if questions about your life. Maybe you're asking what if questions about your future. Uh, what if I don't have enough money to retire? Or, or what if the, the test comes back positive? We're all asking what if questions in life. Some are definitely more important than others. And in the passage that we've just read, Paul is doing some counterfactual history of his own. And and he's picking up what he thinks is the most significant what if question of them all. And that is, what if the resurrection didn't happen? What if the resurrection is false? Now, that may not seem like a big question to us. I, I would actually bet that this question probably didn't keep you up late at night this past week. But for Paul, this question meant the world. So that means one of two things. Either Paul is just being melodramatic and making something out of nothing, or we're the ones who are missing something. Like we're the ones that, are, that aren't really seeing what's at stake here. And so this morning, let's, let's, take, let's take Paul at his word. Let's see what, 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 what's at stake here in Paul's mind if the resurrection isn't true. And so we'll look at this counterfactual in, in both ways. We'll, we'll look at first, what's lost if the resurrection is false? But then secondly, we'll look at what's ours if the resurrection is true, right? So what's lost if the resurrection's false and what's ours if the resurrection is true? So first, what's lost if the resurrection is false? Well, in a word, everything, right? If, if you have the, the text open in front of you, uh, Look at what Paul says is lost if the resurrection didn't happen. There's at least six things. The first one is that if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. That's verses 13 and 16. Uh, That means our preaching is in vain, and and even worse, we're found to be liars about God. That's verses 14 and 15. Uh, Your faith, my faith, is empty and useless, verses 14 and 17. If there's no resurrection, then we're still in our sins, verse 17. That means also that those who died are lost forever, verse 18. And then verse 19, we we have no hope now. All right, six things, and rather than camping out on on all six for this morning and making a two-point sermon, an eight-point sermon, we're just going to boil these six things down to to one, but really two. So what's lost if, if the resurrection is false? Simply put, what's lost is hope. Hope is lost. We, we have no spiritual hope, and we have no material hope. In, in verses 13 through 17, Paul's making his case that if there's no resurrection, there's no spiritual hope. Uh, he's saying that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the whole Christian project is just an empty pursuit, right? If, if the person the religion is named after didn't rise from the dead, then, then there's really no reason to, to be a Christian. Christianity is a waste of time. Paul says his preaching is a waste of time. He says that my preaching is a waste of time, although some of you may already have been thinking that. Uh, like we could spend 20 minutes and have a more fruitful discussion about what bear is best than talking about the resurrection. But even more broadly speaking, if you were to ask someone why they, why they are religious or why people gravitate towards spiritual things, you might get answers like, People are religious because it's fulfilling for them, or they think it's their ticket to the good life, or religion is a way for people to connect with a higher power or find belonging, or the ability to to cope with what they've done or, or what's been done to them. And what Paul is saying is that if the resurrection is false, then Christianity and following Jesus is the most pointless thing you can do with your life. It's the most useless way that you can fulfill your days, that you'd be better off doing something else. Like, it's Sunday morning. Brunch exists, right? You could be doing that instead. And if Christianity is pointless, then its central offer, uh, forgiveness from sin and eternal life, 
It's an empty offer. Now, like, understand what that entails. If, if Christianity is, is false, then, then find something else to do with your guilt. Uh, b- blame somebody else. Minimize it. Uh, say it doesn't exist. Uh, understand what that means for forgiveness. So that when people wrong you, that forgiveness is actually a, an inferior option to, to the other options that are available to you. You could, you could use you, you could do revenge, you could, be, you could use leverage, you could shame or shun or, or cancel. Those are better things to do than to, toward the people that have wronged you. And, and understand that, that if there's no divine judge and no ultimate day of reckoning, then, then why pursue justice for complete strangers? Why not just focus on you and the people in your immediate circle and try to make life as best as it can be for them? Right? There, there's so much better things you can do with your time than, than, than this Christian thing. And moreover, if there's no spiritual hope for forgiveness or, or eternal life, then there's no material hope for us either. There's no hope for our bodies or for our world. Like if there's no life beyond death, and, and then, then get the most out of this life right here and right now. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes uh, to great lengths. He invests a lot of time on correcting the Corinthian believers about their low view of the body, right? That, that our bodies aren't just bags of flesh that have these urges and cravings that we should desire and seek to gratify, but, but rather they are temples that God made and bought at a great price. And so we should honor him with our bodies. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. But if the resurrection didn't happen then Paul is wrong about the body. Paul, Paul is wrong about it. It's not something that we should deny in service of something or someone higher or beyond ourselves, but rather it's something that we should indulge to our heart's content. It's something that we should seek to gratify every single desire. And, and Paul himself agrees to this line of reasoning. If you jump down to verse 32 of chapter 15, Paul says that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, if this world came from nothing and is headed toward nothing, if we're all just balls of chemicals, hormones, dust, and entropy, right? If, if there's no hope in life, no significant meaning to be made, then, then just get the most out of this life now. In other words, what, what's lost if the resurrection is false? Paul would say everything. We have no hope in this life or in the life to come. No spiritual hope and no material hope. Now, that would be the state of things, if not for verse 20, right? If not for verse 20, look at it again with me. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, Christ has been raised from the dead. The the resurrection really happened, and so what does that mean? What does that mean for Paul? Well, it it means everything, right? Turning now to, to our second question, what's ours if the resurrection is true? The answer is hope. Hope is ours. We, we have spiritual hope and we have material hope. See, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that we have spiritual hope. Look with me again at verse 17. It, it says that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins. But if the resurrection happened, do you know what that means? It means we're not in our sins. It, not only are we not in our sins, do you know where we are? We're in him. We're, we're in Christ. We're, we're not in our sins, but we're in Jesus. And, and how does that actually work? How does that happen? Like, why do we need a, a physical resurrection for this spiritual reality to be true? Like, can't we just make the resurrection a metaphor, like spring comes after winter or sun after storm? Like, can't we get the same benefit without, the, without having this physical resurrection? 
Well, the, the short answer of that question would be no. Uh, as we saw last week in, in verses 1 through 11, Paul is saying that one of the things that makes Christianity unique is its relationship to history. Christianity is the only religious system in the world that comes with timestamps, right? That it, it bases its truthfulness on events that actually happened in history. So in Christianity, spiritual truth and historical facts are inseparable, and you can't separate the two. In fact, we, we can't keep sin and the effects of sin in its own kind of spiritual container because sin and its effects have real impact on our physical lives, specifically in death. From, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's a principle that sin always results in death. And so the only way for any of us to know that our sin could be dealt with and paid for and set to the side is if somebody came into this world and experienced the full weight of sin, which is death, and come out the other side. And in the resurrection of Jesus, friends, that's exactly what we have. It's exactly what we have. Uh, Pastor and author Sam Albury puts it this way. He says, the resurrection is the consequence and demonstration of our salvation because death is the demonstration and consequence of our sin. Because death is, is where all sin leads, we need a resurrection to show, uh, to show us that sin doesn't have all the power, that sin doesn't have the final word. And in Jesus, that's exactly what we get. The resurrection is the receipt that our sin has been paid in full, no longer carrying a weight over us. The resurrection is God's signature on his plan of salvation that validates and vindicates the person of Jesus and who he said he was and what he came to do. And you see, this is why we can't separate Jesus' physical resurrection from the spiritual benefits of his resurrection. Because if, unless a bodily, physical resurrection happens, then sin still has the last word. That, that the grave still has its victory, and death still has its sting. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, suffering, sin, and death don't have the final word on your story, but God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness does. And moreover, if, if there's no, uh, because the resurrection happened, we have spiritual hope, and that means that far from being a waste of time, like Christianity, following Jesus, is the most fulfilling thing that you can do with your life. It's, it's the most, uh, it's the highest good you could ever pursue. Because you're in Jesus, you're not in your sins. Because you're in Jesus, you're not in your sins. Because in Christ, you have all the resources that you need for your guilt. Uh, back in 2017, uh, there was a wonderful essay by Wilfred McClay that was, it's called The, the Strange Persistence of Guilt. And he observed that uh, in modern society, we, we believe that if we just remove God from the landscape uh, of, the, of the public square, our guilt would also disappear. But in fact, we found that the reverse is, is true. Uh, McClay, McClay noticed that uh, the more powerful and interconnected we become as individuals in a society, uh, the more our guilt actually increases and gnaws at us. Because the more we become aware of what's happening in the world, it's poverty, it's injustice, it's, it's brokenness, we feel uh, weighed down by, by the guilt of inaction or insufficient action. For instance, you, you might give money to charity, but you know that you could always give more. Uh, you could reduce your carbon footprint, but there's always more that you could do, right? The weight of guilt is ever increasing and never goes away unless somebody comes and takes it from us. And Jesus came and took it from us. Jesus has come to deal with our guilt. And, and when you know simultaneously, when you look at Jesus, that, that you're bad enough that he had to die for you, 
but because of his love, he was glad to die for you. That as our, as our prayer said that he was given up for our transgressions, but raised for our justification, that, that Jesus not only wipes the slate clean, but he throws away the slate, only then that you'll know that you're, that you're no longer in your sins, that, that you're no longer weighed down by the guilt of what you've done. And not only are you, do you have freedom from guilt, you have the ability to forgive those who have wronged you. Right? You have the ability to, to trust God at the end of all things because uh, while the arc of history is long, it does bend toward justice because we have a God who said he will make all things right. We have resources to free ourselves from guilt, to, to the ability to forgive, to trust God in, in, our, in our pursuit of seeing this world be made right and new. And it's only in the person of Jesus, it's only in following Jesus that this kind of world is possible. And it's because of this that we can work with God in the renewal and restoration of the world as well. Because, because God cares about this world, that he sent his son Jesus into it to save us, not just from our sin, but, but to make all things new, we can work with God in the restoration of all things. We can be uh, disciples who make a difference in worship, community, and mission. We can work with God in this restoration project in the world. We can do this in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in pursuing justice and caring for the poor and stewarding creation and speaking the truth in love because we know that this world isn't headed toward nothingness but the restoration to, to consummation and new creation. The resurrection gives us the resources to live differently here and now, not just on the individual level but at the global level even at the cosmic level. And this idea that the resurrection gives us not just spiritual hope, but also material hope, it was driven home for me recently by an article published in the New York Times uh, right in advance of Good Friday by pastor and theologian Esau McCauley. In that article, uh, McCauley was reflecting on both the, the historic struggle of black Americans and also the death of his cousin to cancer when she was just 28 years old. And here's what he had to say. He writes, it's common in Christian circles to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in paradise as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are more radical. Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies will be transfigured or perfected, but they will still be our bodies. Depictions of the afterlife in which we live apart from our bodies gives physical suffering the final word. If a black body can be hanged from a tree and burned, never to be restored again, what kind of victory is the survival of a soul? The mob then would be able to take something that even God cannot restore. If my cousin's body can be ravaged by disease and lost to her forever, does that not render illness more powerful than God? Either give me a bodily resurrection or God must step aside. And friends, we have a God who did not step aside, but who stepped toward us in love. That God gave his son Jesus to have his body broken, to have his body unmade so that we could be made whole. But God raised his crucified body from death, and because of that, everything changes. Because of the resurrection, bodies destroyed by, by hatred and violence and, and sin and overrun by cancer and illness and, and overwhelmed by, by depression and anxiety do not have the final word, but resurrection and everlasting life does. 
Those things that break our bodies will themselves be broken when Christ comes to make all things new. See, friends, the good news of the gospel is that we have a God who doesn't step aside, but who steps towards us in love. And and as we've seen, the difference between there being no resurrection and there being a resurrection is literally everything. It's literally the difference between no hope at all and all the hope in the world. And if you're here today and you want to continue this conversation about hope, know that after the the 1045 service, we're beginning a three-week course called Hope Explored, and we'd love to continue the conversation with you about what makes Christian hope unique and durable. But for now, friends, brothers and sisters in Jesus, know that in a world full of what-if questions, questions about history, about our our relationships, about the future, about pain and loss, and so many more like it, in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the most important what-if question answered for us. And so, friends, look to Jesus today and find hope in him for today and for every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who gives us an eternal and living hope, a hope that is good news not just for our souls and for our spiritual lives, but for our bodies, for this physical world that we, am, that we live in and embody. And as we wait for the renewal of all things, as, as you have not yet made all things new, would your Holy Spirit work and move in our lives to help us be agents of, your, of reconciliation, agents of resurrection in a world that desperately needs to see light and life in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.